Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors explore how they get their ideas through a series of objects they bring into the studio. I'm Katie Brand and today I'm joined by an author whose novels include Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, both of which were adapted into feature films starring Elijah Wood, Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock. His stories have appeared in The New Yorker and The Paris Review. And he's brought along literally the most fascinating collection of objects we've had on the show so far, I think, which includes Kit Eye's paintbrush, Yehuda Amakai's pipe and Isaac Bashefer Singer's typewriter paper. Quite incredible. I can't wait to hear about them. It's Jonathan Saffron Four. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Um, this is quite an extraordinary selection of uh, objects. Are they personal items uh, in that you own them? They belong to some fairly critically acclaimed artists and writers. It's quite amazing. Do I own them? I possess them. Okay, I mean, they're, fair they're enough. The kinds A of good distinction. That, yes. The kinds of things that one wouldn't exactly own. You're the custodian. You could say, yeah. They okay. don't have any commercial value in the world. Fair um, enough. They are sentimental objects. Okay. That's what they are. Are these things that have been gifted to you or that you've bought or that you've inherited? I mean, yeah. So in the case of Kitai's um, paintbrush and Amachai's pipe, those were gifted by their descendants to mm-hmm. me, their children. Mm-hmm. In the case of the typewriter paper, that's something that was given to me by a family friend who was working on the archive of Isaac Basheva Singer for a university. And there were some items they were going to throw away because they were deemed of no value. It's easy to understand how a piece of white typewriter paper would be deemed to have no value. And he thought this is kind of cool, you know, the the next sheet that Singer would have typed on. Mm-hmm. And so he sent it to me and it ended up kickstarting a collection that I now have of, um, I got this when I was, let's say, 20, something like that, before I became a professional writer. And I found it really entrancing. I framed it. Yeah, I was going to ask. You've got a yeah. a framed blank piece of paper. Yeah, well, now I have like 40. Oh, um, okay. So this started it, a collection. It did. I started writing to authors that I admired, and I explained that I had this sheet of singer's paper, and would they send me the next piece that they were about to write on? And it's become poignant as times passed because a lot of the people who sent to me have, have died. Yeah. Well, at least you've always got paper around if you really, really need it. In the, except they're behind glass. But you can always break a little, little hammer. In case of emergency. Exactly, yeah. yes. <laughs> in case of a writing emergency. Yeah. Well, talking of emergencies, uh, it is in many ways the subject of your new book, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. Um, do you think you could just briefly explain uh, what it's about and what the thesis is and the aim of the book? Sure. First, I have to commend your fantastic segue there. Thank you. That was really incredible. Did you enjoy that? Yes. Sometimes I get I off a good one. You did yeah, you? <laughs> yeah. So the emergency is nothing that I'm uh, announcing. It's something that we've all known for years now, which is the climate crisis and the fact that our planet is warming because of human activities in ways that will cause profound loss, You know, are already causing profound loss. As I said, this is something we've known about for years. It's something I've known about for years, and I've cared about it. Um, and yet, I have done almost nothing about it in my own life, other than you know, attending the marches when they pass right in front of me. You could mm-hmm. say, um, <laughs> and that, for whatever reasons, which we could get into or not, started to upset me. And I just had a um, an enough is enough moment, I guess you could say and decided that I would look into what it was that I could do, both in the sense of what would matter in the world and also what I can do because I have limits like everybody else. So I might learn that 
it's um, a very good idea never to fly, but I have to acknowledge that that's on the other side of my limit. Like I, I at least for now, I feel like I have to fly sometimes mm-hmm. and want to fly as well. Mm. So and try to find a, a balancing point um, between what is asked of me and what's possible to give. The book is not like an argument that I'm making to anybody. It's more like uh, share sharing a struggle. One of the things I loved about the book is the way you talk about this sort of sense of apathy, trying to push yourself to overcome it and to have a sort of emergency response to something, to force your body to respond as if it's an emergency, um, when it just sort of day to day doesn't really feel like one. Yeah, the climate change has a quality of feeling far away. It always has, and it, it may always, even as we experience like the increasing regularity of increasingly extreme weather events, 91% of Americans accept the science of climate change. And yet, what does it mean to accept the science of climate change? Does it mean to say, I think scientists are telling the truth rather than lying? Or does it mean to take to heart the implications of what you know and act on it? And if we took to heart the implications of what we know, I don't even think we'd be sitting here right now. We'd be, you know hysterical. And the point I make in the book is, you know, we have been, it's as if we're seeking that moment of hysterical strength, sort of like you were saying, you know, when is this extreme weather event going to come that makes us say, okay, now it's time. Mm. I think we've put the emphasis when we think about climate change on feeling, like we're going to, we're waiting for the feelings to arrive that will motivate action and they may never come. Um, and furthermore, what's needed isn't hysterical strength. We have to live with moderation in mm. a way that we're not at all used to and is uncomfortable for totally understandable reasons. And also doesn't feel very exciting and heroic. Just saying, yeah, I've done some really good recycling this weekend. You sort of feel a bit like, oh, well. Well, you can't tell somebody about it for the rest of your life, but it may be that it it actually makes you happier for the rest of your yes, life. Yes, yes. A lot of us have been living with a kind of very low-level, ignorable alienation or maybe even a little bit of depression knowing that there's something we should be doing that we're not doing and witnessing ourselves not doing it. There's been this great shift from government onto the idea of individual consumers having to drive the change, whereas in fact then the individual consumer thinks, well, hold on, surely if this is an emergency, the government should be doing something, but the government doesn't really seem to be doing anything, but somehow because I've got a reusable coffee cup, that that means I'm supposed to be now responsible for solving climate change. Well, I don't think I can do it and they're not doing it, so let's all just not do it. Yeah, it sounds like kids on the playground, Mm. you know, like, he did it. No, he did it. No, he did it. (laughs) Except for us, it's, no, he didn't do it. No, he didn't do it. No, he didn't. We're all waiting for somebody else. Another issue people have is thinking, well, I can't possibly change anything with my reusable coffee cup and my bike when China, in inverted commas, is just going to keep doing their industry. Whereas, in fact, if I compare myself to a Chinese citizen like me, I am far guiltier of causing climate change than they are. And that actually really brought me up short in the book, I think. Not only that, China puts up a wind turbine every 30 seconds. Wow. And they have an initiative, (laughs) a government initiative right now to reduce meat consumption by half Mm -hmm. by the year 2030 for environmental reasons. The people who are most guilty of perpetrating climate change are the people who will Mm. suffer at last Mm -hmm. and who are doing the least. But even if it were the case that we were depending on others to make large changes, we still have an obligation to make changes in our own lives, in our, in our own countries as much as we can. Well, let's move to your first object. So you've brought in Kitai's paintbrush, or at least a picture of it. Why is it so important to you? Why does it inspire you? 
He's just one of the great artists in any form of the 20th century, born in America and spent a good bit of his adult life in London, and uh, Jewish, and wrestled with Judaism in ways that I found both like really interesting and also relatable. In what ways? What? I'm trying to figure out what it meant to be to feel strongly Jewish without feeling strongly religious mm. in the sense of organized religion. Mm-hmm. Um, wrestling with Jewish texts and um, culture and history, but really primarily, I just loved him because I loved his art, and I got to know him a bit. We spent a few afternoons together. I was actually out in L.A. a couple weeks before he died, and we were going to get together. And I was kind of tired and I didn't push the issue. And I had a lot of sort of unfinished business with him. I mm. think he was going to paint a portrait of me and he kept asking me to send him pictures to base it on. And each one had a problem for some reason. Right. When he passed away, his son, who, I, who I'm still friends with, uh, who's a great writer actually, um, sent me a few things of his, a few little half-used tubes of paint, um, couple little drawings on napkins that he'd made sketches for ideas and um, a paintbrush of his. And where do you keep the paintbrush? How is it displayed? If you were to see it, you would probably say it looks like a little shrine. Mm -hmm. That's not how I think of it. It's like a little wooden standing cabinet that I keep um, Amachai's pipe in as well and a few other, you know, highly sentimental objects. Are there any particular circumstances when you're working or writing that makes you go to it? Does it does it bring a certain feeling in you that you're looking for? It's something that I pass every day. It's in a very central place in my house. You can't get to the door without passing it. You know, some things like climate change, you know, mm-hmm. um, affect us because they're staring us in the face, you know, the equivalent of an extreme weather event. And there's some things that are in the background, but are, despite their near invisibility, are of the utmost importance. And that's sort of the place it has in my life. It's nearly invisible, but it's something that I'm interacting with every single day. The manner in which he died is known publicly. Yeah, he committed suicide, yeah. Yes, and and that is, it's quite a sort of, it's a thread in the book as well, isn't it? Is that a way of trying to deal with a sense of hopelessness about climate change and the world head on? Or is that a subject just generally fascinates you? Um, Both. The will to survive or losing the will to survive is, you know, because of my grandparents who were both Holocaust survivors, then my grandfather ultimately committed suicide is something that I've mm, sort of wrestled with, I guess, my whole life. And it is one, I think, very good way of describing this crossroads rat with climate change is will our will to survive exceed our um, desire to have things? It's mm-hmm. pretty much that simple. It's a book full of lots and lots of facts. In fact, a large section of the book is just lists of facts, which are all fascinating and quite sort of gripping. But one of the things that really struck me that was quite haunting was you talk about the people who have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge of the very small number that have managed to survive the fall. They have almost all described regretting it the moment they let go. It's going to be up there in the top 10 sentences I've read in my life that has just grabbed me by the stomach, really. Mm. I mean, just that notion of regretting it when it was too late, I find that just so horrifying as a prospect. And there's a way in which a confrontation with death is the best argument for life. And it may be that facing climate change and facing our own demise, it's not the case that we're all going to die. That's There's a way of talking about climate change that can actually get hysterical 
the response to to someone like Greta Thunberg sort of almost feels like she's Joan of Arc sometimes. It, it She's gotten a really important message and she's an extraordinary girl who's now becoming a woman. But sometimes the response around it, good and bad, just feels like, can everyone just calm down a bit? Let, let's talk about this properly and listen to her message. Yeah, the way she usually talks about it is that we're in this process of loss and we know the numbers. We know what we're talking about. We know that a certain number of species are going to go extinct. We know that a certain number of um, coastal cities will become uninhabitable. We know that a certain amount of the ice sheets are going to melt. We know that a certain amount of the Amazon is going to be um, deforested. We don't know how much because that number depends on what we do. So I think a lot of people find a kind of psychological resting place either in believing that we're doomed or we're going to be okay. I, I do that myself. I slip between those two modes yes. if, I, if I'm not being really vigilant. If sort of humanity is sort of on the Golden Gate Bridge and and climate change is the river below, are we at the moment where we've changed our minds having let go or are we still just holding on, do you think? We're not going to save the planet or lose the planet. We're not doomed and we're not going to be okay. We're going to experience really profound loss in ways that even if we know about it are, are unimaginable. I doubt that anybody is really taking to heart what it means that we're going to lose coastal cities. Yes. Or that average life expectancies are going to shed years. Or that there are going to be tens or hundreds of millions or a billion climate refugees and what that means. Mm. Uh, you know, the spectrum of our choices will influence the spectrum of the outcomes. Not only influence, will determine. Let's move to your next object then, uh, which is the pipe of Yehuda Amakai, who was a Nobel Prize nominated poet and writer in Israel and internationally and is considered one of the great modern poets. Well, how did you come by this uh, particular item? Somewhere after my sophomore year in high school, I went to Israel on a fellowship program. And as part of that program, they introduced us to all kinds of Israeli and Palestinian figures. And it was on one of the last days of that summer that we met with Yehuda Amachai. I'd never heard his name before, never read anything of his before. And frankly, I was like ready for the summer to be over. I was tired. Sat in a room and that hour with him really changed my life. Like um, he was the most impressive person I've ever met and is still the most impressive person I've ever met. Not because he said anything so smart. He was not showy at all. He's quite quiet actually. He's just never encountered anyone who's so filled with life and so willing to confront life. I left that room just wanting to be him. Mm-hmm. Not even wanting to be a writer, just wanting to be him. A few years later, when I was at university, he came to give a reading. And in anticipation of that, I made a little gift for him. I took a snow globe, which I emptied out and then refilled with some other stuff. And I intercepted him on the way to the reading. And I said, hey, you won't remember this, but you spoke to this group of students a few years ago. I was in that group and it meant so much to me. And I just wanted to give you this little token of my appreciation. And he said, thanks. And started to walk away. And I I said, oh, you know, you can open it now. We can have a long conversation and be lifelong friends if you like. And so he, (laughs) he opened it and he said, oh, thank you. This is really beautiful. And then he, you know, went to the reading. A few years later, I was then a writer a professional writer, and I was living in Berlin at the time. And an Israeli journalist was interviewing me for the translation on the occasion of the publication of my, I think, second book. We had a nice conversation. At the very end, she said, is there any um, Hebrew literature that you like? Amachai had died at this point. But I mentioned him. 
And I mentioned that snow globe story that I just told you. Maybe a week later, I got an email from his widow. And she said, you may have thought that snow globe didn't mean anything, but let me tell you what happened. He brought it home. And whenever he came home from a trip, he would do this thing every time where he would open his suitcase in front of the kids, rifle through it, pretending he had lost whatever gifts he brought for them or forgotten them. And they would get disappointed. And then he'd say, oh, wait, 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 I found it. And he gave them that snow globe. And uh, they loved it. And it's in my daughter's house right now. I can tell you exactly where it is. And I ended up meeting her and befriending her and hearing about the story of his life and also his death. I just remained close with the family. It might have been five or 10 years after that. His um, son came to America and we went out for coffee and he gave me his pipe. Wow. I'm not a journalist, but I feel a journalistic urge to ask you what you put in the snow globe. I, is that a very personal thing? Oh, no, not at all. It was like uh, something that I thought was pretty. It was, it was nothing more than that. <laughs> but I've never heard of anyone ho- buying a snow globe, taking everything out of it, and then putting something else in it. Well, now you have. I have, yeah. It's, it, it, I can see why it made an impression <laughs> on him. <laughs> you say you found a lot about out, out about his life, and I believe one of the things was he volunteered and fought in the Second World War. And in the opening chapters of the book, you make parallels with the war effort in America and how although the war felt a long way away in the in Europe, people were still willing to make sacrifices uh, in order to try and help in some way. And, and you feel that there are parallels with that and what we need to do now to, to try and save what is left of our environment. Yeah, I was moved by um, what I read about home front efforts, you know, what ordinary civilians were willing to do. There's a beautiful speech that I quote of Roosevelt's, Franklin Roosevelt, that he gave as a fireside chat uh, over the radio, um, I think about six, nine months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And he said, something I'm paraphrasing now, but not all of us have the privilege to fight the enemy overseas. Not all of us have the privilege to work in a munitions factory, but each of us has the privilege of contributing um, to the war on the home front. And that will require not only the uh, abdication of the creature comforts, but of everyday pleasures and goods. But once we've won the war and saved our free way of life, um, we won't remember them as sacrifices. We will not have made any sacrifices. And that expression, free way of life, reminds me of what you were saying a moment ago about we're not going to lose the planet, but we could lose that our way of life. Mm. And um, if we are able to get it together and to save that way of life, I think there's a strong echo that we're not going to look back and say, yeah, but we had to fly less Mm. or yeah, but we had to eat less meat. We're going to look back and say that was the absolute least we could do. You know, if you look at it as a deal, we know what it is. Fly less, drive less, eat less meat and have fewer children. We know this. It's Mm. uncontroversial then what you get in exchange is this way of life. It's like the best deal that anybody's been offered in the history of humankind. There is a very strong parallel there, clearly. I think so, yeah. Um, not only in terms of you know, save, what, what, saving, but in terms of destroying. You know, Right now, it's as if Americans and British are smoking and people in Bangladesh are getting lung cancer. Uh, and we continue to indulge this habit of ours because we like it. We need to remember our obligations to each other. You know, if we experience our lives as only ours, 
then we will consume as much as we possibly can, mm -hmm. um, do whatever it is that we believe, even if it's not the case, will make us as happy and gratified as we can be. And um, what comes after that isn't of any particular importance to us. And what's mm. out of our field of vision isn't of any particular importance to us. That attitude is what got us to where we are. Americans have perfected that attitude, by the way. Um, and it will be a sense of camaraderie, like shared humanity, an obligation to people that you will never meet, either because they live halfway around the world or because they'll live in the future, that I think will guide us to the kinds of behaviors that are necessary to save this way of life. Let's move on to your next object now, uh, which is Isaac Bachevas Singer's typewriter paper. Now, we touched on this earlier in the interview about uh, how you came to have this paper, and uh, this has led to a collection of blank sheets of paper from writers, or their next sheet, the sheet that would be uh, filled with their work if they hadn't taken it out of the ream and sent it to you. Well, you said you have 40 uh, pieces of paper framed. Where do you keep them? Where are, where are the 40? Are they all together? Are they, they one are. wall? They are. They're in a bathroom, believe it or not. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a wallpaper fiasco that I had to find a way to cover up. <laughs> this is the unromantic truth. I'm sorry. Um, are they all slightly different shades? The paper? Hmm. Well, all the frames are totally different from one another. I tried to frame them in ways that captured something about the person they came from. Mm -hmm. So like Murakami is in a kind of gray metal... Um, Let's see here. Um, Susan Sontags is in a like ebony wood, very beautiful, sort of minimalistic. Um, Don DeLillo is in. Uh, I remember uh, John, uh, David Foster Wallace is in a yellow frame. I don't know why. I just go to the framer and think, what am I reminded of right now? Your last object is inspired by your wall of blank paper because I think it's a it's a frame note from your son uh, that says, "What does it say?" Um, I just came upon this one day. It says, to write a great poem, I need inspiration, but why? And <laughs> I, I just absolutely love that. Yes. Um, I feel like any attempt I make to articulate what I love about it or to clarify it will miss the point. Yes, it's the sort of thing you have to look at sideways. If you, if you look at it too hard, it's it's, it's going to disappear from you somehow. Yeah, yeah. But that also is something I look at every single day. To write a great poem, I need inspiration, but why? It's lovely. Yeah. It's like a sort of riddle, but yeah. not... Did you ask him what he meant by that? Or no. How old is he? Well, he's now 10. He probably wrote that when he was six. Has he ever asked you why you framed it? He knows how much I loved it. Mm -hmm. As a writer, I have experienced this as well, that the things that, you know, oftentimes the things that mo people most strongly respond to are things I didn't even remember mm -hmm. putting in the book. And the things that I slaved over and felt most proud of are things that are never, ever mentioned. So... Um, the idea of that mystery existing, it's also in a way embedded in the question. Like inspiration is a mysterious thing. Well, uh, there is a lovely section of the book, We Are the Weather, at the end where you write back to your boys and you sort of pull together some of the strands and themes that we've encountered earlier in the book. Uh, and we have an extract from the audiobook now about that. So let's have a listen. When I was your age, I used to rummage through Grandma and Pops's closet hoping to find something I didn't want to find. Condoms, marijuana, even a porno. Your grandparents were either more straight-laced than I gave them credit for, or better hiders. The only unexpected thing I ever found was an envelope in Pops's dresser, tucked in the back of a drawer with black socks and squash balls. Across its front, he had written, For my family. I didn't dare open it, as that would have given away my pastime. 
but I didn't feel a need to open it. It's still there. I check on it every now and then. I actually just checked on it a couple of minutes ago. I know that he's edited it because the For My Family script changes, the size, the color of the pen. While I can't rule out the possibility that the envelope is filled with condoms, marijuana, and porn, or a message that says, stop looking through my things, I've always felt sure of what it contains. A few concise sentences about how much he loved his family, followed by scrupulously organized information about estate planners, insurance policies, bank accounts, safety deposit boxes, cemetery plots, organ donorship, and so on. That's who Pops is. There were years of my life when that drove me crazy. Why couldn't he be more emotional, more expressive? Where was the wildness required by a finite life? But then I became an adult, and I had you, and now I understand him differently. Pops would seek the advice of an accountant only if he feared he didn't pay enough taxes. He ate red meat twice a day for most of his life, but effectively became vegetarian after his parents died of heart attacks. Your grandfather has probably written 100 unpublished letters to the editor. To whom are those unpublished letters to the editor speaking? What do you call a note like the one in his dresser? That was We Are The Weather, written and read there by my guest Jonathan Saffron Four. And just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss us twice a month. You can find us at sites like Apple Podcasts or Spotify via a podcast app or on your Alexa-enabled device. Just to sort of round off here, you make some very funny comments. And one of the things I love about this book, and I think people will really respond to, is how honest you are about times where you've slipped. And it's actually very funny a few of the times where you admit to um, eating burgers. And, and there's a very funny part about giving up dairy. You deal with this in a really upfront way, in a way that I don't think I've seen in any climate change books that I've read before. I find it endlessly puzzling that I can know what I know and care as I care, and just constantly either want to do the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. I think I've learned better not to think of it as the wrong thing, you know, but to think of it as part of what it is to be human, you know, to have cravings. And cravings are not responsive to reason. That's what makes them cravings. And um, cravings not only for food, but for all kinds of things in life, you know. I, and it's okay to fall short I think it's much better, rather than to highlight the falling short, the definition of hypocrisy in a way is like the distance from some imagined ethical perfection. We're so in the so used to observing our own hypocrisies and the hypocrisy, hypocrisies of others, we're so afraid of it that it often um, prevents us from just starting, you know, even trying at all. Sort of, we have this attitude that, well, I can't do that, so I'm not even going to try. And know? also, particularly in this country and with the press in this country and the general tone they strike about things, they love to find someone who's trying to do something and then find a way in which they've been slightly hypocritical at some point and just sort of blow them apart with it. And then I guess as a reader, you think, well, I, I can't ever if even they can't get away with anything then i can't either and no one's really doing anything and it's just another reason to let yourself off the hook but one of the great things i think that practically just to end on is you know one of the best things people could do is just cut out dairy and meat for breakfast and lunch and that would sort of get us quite a long way to where we need to be yeah so that's not an opinion that's the science the science is that 
this was published at the end of last year, and it was an analysis of food systems all over the world. Um, and the relationship between our food choices and climate change found that while people who live in malnourished parts of the world, they could afford to eat a little more meat and dairy. But people who live in the United Kingdom and the United States, and by extension Europe, need to reduce meat consumption by 90% and dairy by 60% in order to avoid what the authors call catastrophic irreversible climate destruction. So that's the science. That's like, we don't agree or disagree with that any more than we agree or disagree with one plus one equals two. But we can talk about what to do with that science. We can say, well, I recognize that that's where we need to be, but we're not going to get there. So I'll do the most that I can. Or we could say 90%, 60%, forget it. I'll just reduce it by 100%. There are people who can do that. It has to be a personal issue how one responds to that science. So what I decided in my own life was a good way to approach that science was to say, okay, well, I cannot eat animal products for breakfast and lunch, and I will be a vegetarian for dinner. Mm -hmm. Um, In the book, what I suggest for others is to not eat animal products for breakfast and lunch and eat whatever you're going to eat for dinner. Eat as you have normally eaten dinners. If someone comes up to me and says, I hear you. Of course, I'm not a denier of science. I respect the arguments you're making. I think the most I can do is not eat animal products for breakfast. I wouldn't say, you hypocrite. You know, you're, I would say, that sounds good. That's a good start. That's a lot better than ignoring this problem altogether. People who start tend to continue. And people who aren't making any efforts tend not to make any efforts over time. So I think there's something actually radical about taking a first step, even if it's a small first step, and having a, a real and concrete plan for oneself, not yeah, I'm going to try to fly less, or yeah, I'm going to try to eat less meat. But to say, you know, quantify it, write it down on a piece of paper. This is what I'm going to do and share it with people, you know, share it with your friends. If you have a partner, share it with your partner. If you have a parents or kids, share it with them, have witnesses, be on the hook and let them be on the hook to you Hmm. as well. In a book that's very meditative and interesting, fascinating, full of facts, reflections, observations, and great practical advice. Um, it's We Are the Weather, uh, written by my guest today, Jonathan Safran Four. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Former guest of the Penguin podcast, Deborah Levy, returns with her brand new book, The Man Who Saw Everything, which was longlisted for the 2019 Booker Prize earlier this year. It's an unmissable novel about old and new Europe and old and new love. I was thinking about how Jennifer Moreau had told me I was never to describe her beauty, not to her or to anyone else. When I asked her why, I was silenced in this way. She said, Because you only have old words to describe me. This was on my mind when I stepped onto the zebra crossing with its black and white stripes at which all vehicles must stop to allow pedestrians to cross the road. A car was coming towards me, but it did not stop. Deborah Levy presents an ambitious, playful and totally electrifying novel about what we see and don't see, about carelessness and the harm we do to others, about the weight of history and our attempts to shrug it off. The audiobook is out now, read by George Blagden.